the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, why did YouTube remove John MacArthur's latest sermon? And then we're joined by Dr. Troy Jackson, a co-founder of the organization Courageous Love. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us, Aubrey, on a snowy Monday. It is so snowy, Brian. This is crazy out there. It was as bad as, I know we're in the afternoon now, but this morning, driving kids to school, I was just, I'm not normally the guy who's like, close school, close school, if there's one or two Mm -hmm. uh, uh, flakes of snow. That was ridiculous. Yeah, the roads were so terrible. I I drove past two car wrecks this morning, and I thought Mm. they should have just canceled school. I mean, we have the technology to go online now. We should have just done it. But yeah, it it was crazy out there today. It was was nuts. I suppose we do live in the Chicagoland and snow happens, but uh, hopefully you got to where you had to be today very safely. We're glad that you're with us here on this Monday afternoon. Aubrey, we're going to jump into something about YouTube and John MacArthur, but we do need to keep up with our daily Aubrey Sampson COVID-19 positive <laughs> update. So nice. You had the weekend on Friday. Yes. You told us you couldn't uh, be more excited than just to sleep the weekend away. Yes. How are you feeling? Yes, I, I, I will. I won't take up too much time talking about this, but I will say I spent all of Saturday just laying on the couch and it was phenomenal. And I'm feeling better. I'm not definitely Good. not 100%, but I'm probably 75, 80%. Still a lot of tiredness, still a lot of congestion, but definitely like my brain works better today. I can already tell I'm more present with you, Brian, than I have been. So, well, we're going to hold you to that. We're going right. to, how about at the end of the show, we will declare whether your brain was That's more with us idea. today. I'll allow you to have that judgment finally. Uh, and while you were laying on the couch this weekend, you probably saw those football games. I might have been the greatest weekend of NFL football ever. I know you are not sports person, so you, I'm sure, did not watch any of the four games. Uh, but let's just say that is why the NFL is king. I was I spent more time on my couch this week just yelling <laughs> at the TV. I, yeah. So last night it was so funny. Last night we were putting my kids to bed, and Kevin was watching. I don't know what game was on late last night. It was the Chiefs Bills greatest okay. game ever. Okay. So you, so one of my kids, I heard him like go, Dad, why do you keep yelling? Why, why, why? <laughs> it was so good. So we hope you had a great weekend. Uh, I was able to go out to dinner with my wife for our anniversary. Oh, we had a great right. time. Happy so anniversary! Thank you very much. It was a great weekend. All right, YouTube, Aubrey and Pastor John MacArthur, they have been on a collision course. Uh-oh. Uh oh. And there was this. Uh, little tidbit just the other day. I'm reading this out of the Christian headlines. YouTube removes John MacArthur's latest sermon on biblical sexuality, labels it hate speech. 
It says YouTube has removed a recent sermon by John MacArthur in which he talks about biblical sexuality and asserts that God made humans as male and female. Mm. They said they pulled it specifically. That, remember, there are a bunch of people preaching sermons about the nationwide protest against a new Canadian law banning conversion therapy. And John MacArthur said from the pulpit a week ago Sunday, there is no such thing as transgender. You are either XX or XY. That's it. God made male. Uh, God made man male and female. That is to Genetically, that is physiolog- uh, physiology, that is science, that is reality. Uh, and so YouTube said, nope, we are going mm. uh, to pull that. And therefore, lots of people have gotten up in arms about the fact that YouTube uh, would pull that. And so, Aubrey, when I read that, I, I was trying to get through kind of the sensational nature of it, right? John okay. MacArthur, yeah. YouTube, yeah. Uh, you know, in some ways, the sermons were preached knowing that this would be the reaction. But, right. but I want to have the bigger question. And we do remind you, John MacArthur, he's a teammate here on AM 1160. You can actually hear him weekdays at 630 a.m. and 730 uh, p.m. But what do we make of this on a uh, – I want to I step back and go on kind of a larger okay. scale. The okay. fact that – YouTube, which is a private organization, they can do whatever they want. But yep. the fact that YouTube and places like, you know, Twitter and Facebook are, are taking these stances against what many people, while it's probably very conservative, it's at least conservative biblical orthodoxy, historical Christian yeah. orthodoxy, yeah. That, that they are taking those stands while not taking stands against some other things. Right. What's the big, what's the big, bigger takeaway here than just John MacArthur and YouTube? Yeah. So stepping outside of that story altogether, I do think you like hit the nail on the head when you said historical biblical orthodoxy, because I mean, this is the hard part, Brian, whether or not you align exactly with MacArthur and his church and the way they talk about things or not. As an evangelical Christian, if you're in that camp, this is still thousands of years of historical biblical orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And you may not say it the exact same way. You may have a different understanding of it. But at the end of the day, like push comes to shove. That's where the church has landed for thousands of years. Right. And I don't think that's going to change. But culture is obviously changing dramatically. I I sent you a a text yesterday, Brian, and you and I may talk about this later on in the show, but someone who was on Facebook just kind of airing their grievances that their church is not affirming, LGBTQ affirming, and therefore they're leaving and they were doing it very publicly. But again, you're saying you want a church to go against thousands of years of historical orthodoxy. That's a big deal. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's one, one layer. The other layer is YouTube canceling it. I mean, I think you're right. YouTube's a private organization. Uh, just like our social media, they have the right to make the decisions they make and pull things on or pull things off, whatever. But um, I think the fear is that this begins to be um, a very anti-Christian mm-hmm. type of censorship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially a place like YouTube that I I think would be very against censorship yeah. and very uh, for freedom of speech is now determining what is or isn't uh, hate speech. And that is, that begins to become a problem. And I think it's something that like um, in the past, probably, you know, conspiracy theorists would say this is going to happen to Christians. Right. And I think I would have been like, no, you're going overboard. (laughs) I think it's actually happening. And it's definitely, I don't know that we should be surprised because this is the world, right? Like like the message of the gospel is foolishness for those who are perishing. So we shouldn't be surprised. 
the question is, what do we do and what's our response? Yeah, because here's the here's the surprise. No, like you said, not to be surprised. But here's the interesting thing. It would have been one thing for YouTube to go. Uh, we disagree with John MacArthur's uh, stance on this or right. we disagree. But they jumped all the way to hate speech. They yeah. said this. What you yeah. have said here about transgenderism and there they're being male and female and it being genetically uh, de- pre- uh, ge- genetically determined and all of right. these things that is not that far outside of the bounds, right? It's not outside right. of the bounds of historical orthodoxy. Right. For YouTube to say this is hate speech, I do think needs to cause all of us to go, whoa, yes. okay, this is not something that we as a culture as a, at large are willing to even debate anymore. Right. This apparently is not something that we're willing to have a discussion about. Right. Uh, but instead, we're going to jump to hate speech. And the second YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, whatever else jumps to hate speech. Now the door is open to, and therefore we are scrubbing it from everywhere. Right. Like it can't be here. And I do think that you, it, it is not a far leap anymore, Aubrey, to what you and I would have said, you know, five years ago. Oh, that'll never happen. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that's not going to happen. It is not a far leap now to get to the point of going, okay. Uh, kind of these big social media conglomerates, these other things, there is a trajectory where you can see down the road a day where even more mild yeah. uh, biblical orthodoxy, historical yeah. Christian orthodoxy is going to be labeled hate speech yeah. and said this can't be. So I do think – uh, I, I think you make a good point. We shouldn't be surprised. This shouldn't be like, oh, what happened? Uh, and it, I'm not even sure it needs to be the place of protest. Everybody get off of uh, YouTube, YouTube, right? right. I think it's just good to be aware. Yeah. Friends, we are swimming yeah. against the stream yeah, increasingly. Yeah. And uh, I do look forward. I think later in the week uh, we should pick up with that Facebook post you were talking about because I think that also speaks to – how individuals view the church versus, yeah. you know, big organizations. So John MacArthur uh, running up against it with YouTube. And again, as a reminder, I mentioned this before, you can hear John MacArthur on Grace to You weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by the State Strategies Director for Faith in Action, but also the co-founder of Courageous Love. We had the other co-founder on, Chuck Mingo, last week. Uh, they are the organization behind the Living Undivided and the Working Undivided experience. You might remember that interview we did with Chuck Mingo last week. Uh, we're thrilled to have on the co- other co-founder of Courageous Love. That is Dr. Troy Jackson. Troy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure, and we're, we're thrilled to have you on. Before we jump in to what we want to talk to you about, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Help us get to know you. Yeah, I'm a, a white guy who grew up in Indiana uh, went and pastored a church in Cincinnati, Ohio for almost 20 years and then uh, did a doctorate in civil rights history, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, mm-hmm. uh, then got involved in organizing work. What does it look like to not just talk about justice, but do justice? Mm. I got to meet Chuck Mingo through that and became one of there were actually about eight co-founders oh, okay. co-founders oh, nice. back in the day. And and uh, Chuck and I are the co-founders that are still uh, with the program on on the team at this point, so mm. uh, yeah, it is. It's great to be here and and excited to talk about Dr. King and about the work of justice. Mm-hmm. Well, we are so excited that you're here and, and hearing about your doctoral work and hearing about your passion. And we know you have a book, Becoming King: Martin Luther King Jr. in the Making of a National Leader. So I don't know where to start with all of that, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? 
and perhaps what inspired you to write it. And if that connects to your doctoral work, then all the merrier. It, it <laughs> totally does. So I was pastoring in Cincinnati and decided to go back and get a master's and doctorate in U.S. history, civil rights history at the University of Kentucky. And the year before I went there, my advisor, Gerald Smith, Dr. Gerald Smith, had felt a call to preach. And so he's leading African-American studies at University of Kentucky, committed follower of Jesus, meets Clay Carson, who's the uh, director of the King Papers Project at Stanford at the time. And bottom line is uh, the King Papers are like going to be eventually 10, 12, 14 volumes of King's speeches and mm. letters and writings, etc. And their first three volumes had been chronological. But Coretta Scott King had a file of King's sermons and religious writings in the basement she had not shared with them. Wow. So they finally get them, and they'd already produced three volumes. So some of the things would have been in earlier volumes. So they said, let's do a volume entirely on King's religious writings. Mm. And so Gerald asked me to be a research assistant, eventually asked me that the project asked me to be a co-editor. So I spent four or five years in King's early sermons and religious writings. And that set me up to uh, finally say, okay, I should do a dissertation on King. And the things that really hit me were uh, the way King's preaching and faith seemed to change in Montgomery. Uh, And I can talk about that a little bit, but also just the, the, the crucible of the Montgomery bus boycott and being in leadership, Mm. how that reshaped King. And so That's what led me to write a dissertation and then a book called Becoming King that focuses on the influence of Montgomery on who who, uh, Dr. King became. Yeah, and I'd love for you to to unpack that because how did it change him, his his preaching and who he was as a pastor and a leader? Talk to us more about that. Unpack that. Yeah, so Dr. King grew up the son and grandson of preachers. He grew up in church. He grew up with some of the leading black preachers theologians and preachers uh, having dinner around his dinner table with his father and mother. So he was steeped in the black church. But when you read King's early religious writings and early sermons, you get the feeling that God is more of an idea Hmm. than a relationship. And what begins to show up in a very deep way once the bus boycott begins is this shift where there is now a personal dependence on God uh, a personal sense that without God, uh, he would not have the courage and strength um, to lead and lead in love <clears throat> during the midst of the boycott. Uh, God becomes personal um, in that point in his preaching and I think in King's life uh, and becomes a sustaining force for his public ministry. And this is kind of a, a large question that might be hard to answer, but obviously we just celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day on January 17th. And, I, you know, thinking about his legacy now, especially over the past couple of years we've had in our nation, wonder how we can continue working towards the goals and dreams that he had for our country. Yeah, that's a good question, Aubrey. I think part of what happens with Dr. King is, that a few phrases get latched onto and they become the totality of how King is remembered, like not judging by the content or by the color of skin, but content of character mm-hmm. from the I Have a Dream speech. And certainly that was part of, of uh, King's public ministry and leadership as a civil rights leader and a pastor. But the two things I think 
we would be wise to pay attention to is that Dr. King was a prophet mm. and, and he led a movement that was a prophetic movement mm. that was, was not so, I, I mean, this is someone who could get in direct contact with uh, President Johnson for a while. But when he felt like God was saying uh, this war in Vietnam is not what we should be doing as followers of Jesus, Dr. King was willing to speak out on that. Hmm. He was willing to say that he was coming out against the war in Vietnam. And because of that, his relationship with the president gets severed. He wasn't so focused on access to power. Mm. That he allowed his moral witness to mm. get to get blunted. Wow, was willing to take criticism. King was was willing to ask tough questions about race, economics, opportunity. Uh, that that I mean, his last campaign and it was uh, a really important one was the Poor People's Campaign. Mm. Really asking the question: How can the wealthiest nation in the world have poverty rates not only for black people but white people? Uh, folks of Hispanic and Latinx orientation and, and uh, background, how does he, uh, how did, why are they suffering in poverty and what do we need to do systemically uh, to address, uh, to address that? So that's the one thing is, is King was about justice and he was brave and courageous about it. The other is that King was about redemption. Mm-hmm. And he always said, don't let our enemy bring us so low as to hate him or her. Mm-hmm. It was always about redeeming. It was about inviting people into their best selves. And some of the rhetoric and tenor of of a lot of the movements right now can be so strident Hmm. uh, and can move, if we're not careful, into demonizing, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a way to rob someone of their God-given dignity, even Hmm. those who are enemies for a season. Hmm. Uh, And and King never stepped into that. The theme of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was to redeem the soul of a nation. They were about redemption, not win at any cost. Yeah. Oh, that's such great background. Uh, And and Troy, before we let you go, I I do want to make sure to give you an opportunity to remind people of what courageous love is. Could you talk more about the work of courageous love and how can our listeners learn more and get involved with what you guys are doing? Yeah, so Courageous Love came out of uh, Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, and the first thing we did was a six-week experience called Living Undivided that that puts people together across race for six weeks, two hours a week, to really get into deep relationship, to reckon with our history, to think and, and reckon with and, and get trained on empathy, which is a bridge-building skill that we desperately need if we're going to move forward for racial healing and justice. Uh, we talk about systemic and structural racism. We move through the healing and repentance work that is so important. And we push people into action. Mm-hmm. And uh, Living Undivided, uh, we've we've had uh, 50-some groups uh, largely online go through Living Undivided in 2021. We're eager for others to join us in this new year. You can go to undivided.com and, and fill out some of the links there, and we will be in touch about your church, your organization. Uh, we also have Working Undivided, so if you're working uh, out in the in the public sector a little more, in the in the private sector in business, or even we've done a cohort with a police uh, mm. precinct in Amazing. suburban Cincinnati with wow. the juvenile court system uh, in Hamilton County. So we want to step into some of those places. So again, undivided.com. And uh, we believe this is vital work for the Church of Jesus Christ right now. 
That's a great word. And let me encourage you to get the book that we've been talking about called Becoming King, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Making of a National Leader. The author of that is Dr. Troy Jackson. Troy, thanks for all you're doing. This was really fascinating. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks so much. Brian, I thought we would start out by just kind of, what do you say, punting to all fields? Did I say that right? I I always like to say we're going to shoot to all fields. Shoot to all fields. Okay, I tried to make it sports. But you got football on mine. I'm proud of you. You got football on your mind. Yeah, I got the Super Bowl in mind. That's all I'm thinking about right now. But anyway, uh, I thought we would talk about a few different pieces of headline news. And the first is this. It has been a year uh, of... Biden's presidency. We hit the anniversary of uh, Biden's presidency last week. And um, there's some mixed feelings Mm -hmm. about how things have been going. CNN politics polled a group of Americans and 41% of Americans approve of the way he's handling his job. 54% disapprove. So a little bit more disapprove than approve. It's according Mm -hmm. to the latest CNN polls. Um, Brian, what do you think... uh, uh, is part of that. What do you think that those kind of uh, sort of like lackluster numbers show us? Yeah. You know, I think it's two things for me. Uh, one is it, it reminds us that we are in a very divided society. So yeah. there's always going to be X number of people who will never vote for the other side. Uh, but Biden's Biden stuff and this, look at it, you and I getting to be political pundits here. Uh, <laughs> Biden's numbers to me, uh, also shows something else, that there was a segment of the population who said anybody else but Donald Trump, yes. and that anybody else is going to get us back to yes. what, I've, what I've always thought this place should be, that Donald Trump was the only problem, right? Like, And I'm not yeah. saying whether you or I believe that. I'm talking about a segment of our population yeah. uh, saying that as long as it's not him, get anybody else in, and then everything's going to be back to – and now we have all these issues, right? We got inflation and we've got other things going on. We still have the pandemic. I think people literally thought if we vote for somebody else, the pandemic's going to get solved, right? And all of these yep. things. And so I do think there are people who voted that way who are now turning on Biden going, wait, in some ways things are worse in my life. And in some ways, yeah, yeah it's nice not to have what the, what I didn't like about the last guy. And so I do think there is – I call it buyer's remorse. People going, well, I wanted somebody different than Trump, but I don't think this is what I wanted. And so, I mean, I I read a stat yesterday, Aubrey, that said uh, in one survey that the percentage of people who said, so it's not even approve or disapprove, but the number of people who said they would vote for President Biden again in the next election was as low as 33%. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do think that the tide has turned. The numbers are even worse for the vice president. And um, I think that's it is probably think about if you had a pastor who people didn't like and everything about any issue in the church was directed at that pastor. And you thought if we could just get a new pastor, everything's going to be great. And then you get that new pastor. And while they're different, you still have a lot of the same issues going on around you it would probably disillusion you a little bit. That's my political pundit. I put on my political pundit hat. That's what I think is going on. Yeah, I th- I think that's a really in- insightful comment, Brian, that a lot of us uh, or a lot of people, Americans, and I'll, I'll include myself in this, didn't vote for Trump because we just wanted Trump out of office. And mm-hmm. so now you're kind of like, okay, can we just sort of squeeze through the next uh, year or so, just hoping that perhaps the next candidate is the one to actually turn things around. Maybe there's been some disappointment thinking that like Biden would be the one to save the day. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think maybe that's some of the some of the lackluster response is just like, oh, okay, this wasn't exactly what we thought it was going to be. Maybe still better than Trump, but hmm. Interestingly, Tom Hanks uh, did a like created a video with the Biden Harris campaign to celebrate the one year anniversary, and he basically said, "Look, America is stronger than we were a year ago today. Our economy isn't all the way back, but it is getting stronger." And yeah. um, he's he's uh, trending on Twitter because of it. Lots of people. Um, either disagreeing or agreeing with right. Tom Hanks based on yeah. that. But anyway, that's interesting. All right, so Tom let's Hanks, hold on. Did you see ahead. the Tom Hanks thing that I mentioned this last week? Did you see the whole, you know, the whole theory that the Simpsons uh, uh, can predict the future all through the years? Um, right, right. There's a former clip of uh, Tom Hanks where some political candidate uses Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks gets up in the video in The Simpsons and goes, because the politicians have lost all credibility, I'm going to give them mine. <laughs> and then people were using Stop. that. Stop. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Oh, it's that's hilarious. Again. Hello, I'm Tom Hanks. The U.S. government has lost its credibility, so it's borrowing some of mine. Tussle my hair, Mr. Hanks. Sure thing, son. <laughs> That it's is clear. Okay, well, the Simpsons save the day. Yet again, the Simpsons are prophetic once again. All right, here's another piece of news. This uh, this actually applies to me fighting COVID right now. Fauci, whatever you think about Fauci or not, Fauci is optimistic that Omicron will peak in February. He says things are looking good. He says this was on Sunday that he is as confident as he can be about the prospect of most states reaching a peak of Omicron cases by mid February. And he does say you never want to be overconfident when you're dealing with this virus. It has surprised us in the past, but um, we are seeing what hopefully is yeah. the peak and uh, beginning, like we've talked about before, moving from a pandemic to an endemic. Do you think that's possible, Brian? I do. It does feel like it, right? Like it feels like, okay, this is, you know, even just a couple of weeks ago, things felt so much worse with this new variant. And Aubrey, it highlights the fact that we as a nation, uh, as schools, as churches, as states, as a, as, as a nation need to move this conversation to what now? Like, what are we going to do? Like at every variant, are we going to close everything and do this? Or at every, uh, is every state just going to do their own thing and it's just going to be the Wild West? Like, are we going to be in masks all the time for the rest of our right, lives? Or, right. Like at some point, I, I don't know how that conversation happens, Aubrey, because it's gotten so politicized. Right. Uh, but what? how do we actually as a nation uh, begin to move this ball forward to say, okay, listen, uh, as much as we hate what I'm about to say, it's is likely true to some form or fashion, COVID is going to be a part of our lives uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But we can't keep being terrified of it and just shutting everything. So what actually are we going to do as opposed to uh, talking heads yelling about how, why they're right and everyone demonizing everybody? Like we've got to figure out how to live. So I hope Fauci's right. Like this is peaking I and, hope so too. you know, we're going to move into a season in February right. and March where f things feel more normal. But there's going to be a next one, right? Like there's right. going to be a next one. Then what? Yeah. What are we going to do? And uh, I, I just am tiring of both ends of the spectrum and just yeah. I, I want to have some adult conversations about like whether you were right or wrong doesn't matter right now. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. What's the United States of America? What is the state of Illinois? What is my kid's school? All of it going right. to look like now going forward. 
Right. And I mean, I don't want to be totally naive, but you know, I've been sick for almost two weeks. It's terrible. Like, I'm not going to pretend like this was so easy. I'm wow. That was COVID was nothing. No, it was terrible. My mother-in-law died of COVID. So I take COVID as seriously as you can take it. That said, at some point, it does have to go the way of the flu Mm -hmm. or strep throat or something where when we know that it's going around, we do our best to wash our hands, maybe slow down on extracurricular activities, protect our kids, but then knowing, hey, we might get it, we might not. Mm -hmm. We don't Mm -hmm. stop everything that we're doing constantly because of it. I don't know what it's going to take for us to get there. I know some states are there and we're different because we're still in Chicago, but I am praying that whatever the new normal is going to be, we can get there by mid-February, like Fauci said. Let's hope that's true. This is Tom Hanks saying, if you're going to pick a government to trust, why not this one? Brian, a lot of our listeners um, are followers of Jesus and are passionate about reading the Bible. But as most of us know, that reading the Bible can be difficult. That's right. And sometimes confusing. And even for you and I as pastors who sort of read the Bible professionally, um, sometimes it can feel complicated. And especially for people who are either new to scripture or just like, hey, maybe there's not a lot of Bible background that they have. It's a, I mean, it's an intimidating book to open and just start reading. Um, well, there's a pastor by the name of Mike Winger, and he does something called 20 Questions with Pastor Mike on YouTube. He has okay. various episodes. And one of the things that he talks about was this very topic that, um, and his argument is that sometimes it's difficult for us to read the Bible by ourselves because we're used to reading devotional books where the work is sort of prepackaged and done for you. And so when you open the Bible and start reading it, you're expecting that. But um, it's actually maybe a little bit different or a little yeah. bit trickier. So before we dive into what he says, I want our listeners to take a listen to Pastor Mike Winger explaining the difference between devotional reading and Bible reading. Let's take a listen. But here are some some problems that you may have as you read you read the Bible, why it's harder for you than it needs to be. Um, one is you are used to devotionals. By devotionals, I mean, I remember when my youth pastor, back when I first was, you know, walking with the Lord, my youth pastor asked me to um, do a devotional for the church, for the youth group. And I said, yes, I'd love to. And then I walked away and I thought, what's a devotional? I don't know what that is. And I was like really struggling with just figuring out what he meant by it. And I was too embarrassed to ask because probably just pride. But at any rate. What we experience in church is these often these devotional moments, right? Where where somebody opens the Bible and they bring a particular verse or passage out and they already have like this prepackaged application, this really effective, impactful application. I do this all the time in Bible studies with you. I say, here's application. Um, but when you open the Bible and you just start reading, if you're expecting that experience every time, you have an expectation for kind of like a fast food treatment of scripture. But often, when you open the Bible to read it on your own, what you're doing is less like fast food and more like home cooking. And home cooking can take all day. Home cooking can take a lot of prep. You know, you get the steak and you marinate it overnight and then you get it over here and you have the things and you cook the thing and you bake it and you prepare all the ingredients. That's more like what's happening when you're reading on your own. It's not prepared for you. You are now digging in. So don't have a devotional expectation that every time you read the Bible, you're going to get these like warm fuzzies, like these nice feelings or this, this like thing where after you leave that devotional time, you feel like God has spoken to you freshly. 
I don't think you should expect that. I don't, I do not think you should expect that. I don't think there's anything in scripture that says that every time you open the Bible, you will sense that God spoke to you freshly. And that expectation creates a sense of disappointment when what you were doing was you were just preparing the ingredients that later you would discover these impactful and important things. You were storing up knowledge that later, maybe a year down the road, that verse comes back, that idea comes back, that truth comes back and saves you from error or from a problem. Okay. So here's, I think this is a really good metaphor, Brian, Mm -hmm. based on what Pastor um, Mike had to say, that when you're opening the Bible to read it on your own, it's less like fast food, which is what he would say a devotional is. It's prepackaged. It's ready for you. You read it. You're encouraged. You're satisfied. You move on. But reading the Bible is more like home cooking where you have to shop and you have to prep your ingredients and then you have to cook it and you have to like dig in a little Mm -hmm, bit more mm -hmm. is what he's saying. And one of the things that he talks about is our expectations when we come to scripture, that if we expect to open the Bible um, and and learn what we learned from a devotional where all the work has been done for us, then we might feel disappointed by that. Mm. When instead, we need to sort of come and let the Bible be what the Bible is. Okay, so that stated, Brian, you're a pastor. If mm-hmm. you're if you're ministering to someone and they're asking like, look, I am totally new to the Bible. I don't even have devotional experience. How do I begin? What are some practical tips that you give people? Yeah. What I don't tell them is, hey, start on page one and just start going. Right, <laughs> that's, right, right. That's difficult. Um, you know, I, I think what I want to say is do pick up um, a, a some good resources that help you along the way. What he's talking about, devotional stuff here. Uh, I, I would want to start them in the Gospels. Hey, let's start in the book of John. Let, let's go there. The best thing we could do, and I know this doesn't always work for people's times or schedules, but the best thing we could do is like, hey, let me read with you. Let's do it every day. We'll, we'll both be reading the same passage uh, and then we'll talk or we'll text or we'll do whatever else. Let me walk this journey. But if not that, then, hey, let me find you a good resource to walk the journey with you and get mm. you going. But Aubrey, I think his his main point is really a solid one because – Man, I know when I went to Wheaton and it was, I was a Bible major and, uh, they start teaching you stuff about, you know, genre and background and criticism and all this stuff. And your mind is just kind of spinning going, I've never really understood the Bible at this level before. It's almost like an onion that you peel it and Mm. you peel it and it just keeps going. But, but that's the beauty of the Bible is the depth of it. It, That's not to scare us, but if we do think, you know, I'm going to open it up and I'm going to read, you know, five verses today and I'm going to get a nugget for life like a lot of devotionals work with. It's probably not how it's going to work. Like yeah. by understanding scripture, what it is, how to apply it, how to understand it really takes work. And I think that's what he's getting at. Devotionals don't take work and they've got devotionals play a huge purpose. This is not anti-devotional. Right. But if we go to scripture and go, okay, I'm going to read the Old Testament like I read, you know, um, whatever devotional it is, and uh, I'm I'm going to get the same type of thing, it's just not going to work that way. And so I do think find good resources, become a student of the Bible. Mm. uh, And then, you know, if you start every day with a devotional reading to kind of get your mind – Awesome. 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 It's a, it's a bolt and here. Yes. uh, But understand that they work differently from one another. Yeah, I think that's really good. I I think it's helpful to remember that your relationship with the Word of God is a lifetime relationship. So you don't have to 
understand all of it all at once. Like you said, it's an onion. And and so layers are peeled back as you grow in your relationship with the Lord. And as the Holy Spirit uh, unveils more to you in your Christian community, like things will make more sense or new sense, or they'll hit you in a different way. And I also think there's things to remember, like this is a over thousand year, like thousands of year old book Mm -hmm. from a totally different culture than we live. And so it is okay if you're like, I don't get that. Oh, well, yeah, of course you don't get it. Like none of us pick up thousand year old manuscripts of any type of literature and it just makes sense to us. Like it is okay for it to be hard work. Um, but I do think remembering to the why, like why do we read scripture? We we read it to know the word of God, we to know the truth of God, to grow in our intimacy with God, to grow in our our just spiritual life and our understanding and wisdom. That that kind of helps you stay on the path. And like you said, Brian, use a devotional to get your thoughts going. Like there are awesome devotionals out there, but then use some time to just, like you said, be a student of the Bible, be curious about it, get some of the good resources that mm-hmm. are out there available online. And, um, and it's, and I would also say like, get in a small group at your church where people are studying the Bible together so you can read scripture in community and, and get the help you need to keep going. But anyway, yes. I thought that was an interesting point. Hopefully that encourages you to pick up your Bible if it's been a while or um, to look at it in a fresh way. Good news, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. It is the end of today's show. And one of our favorite things to do at the end of every show is to Brian and I like to send you home with something encouraging, inspiring, or challenging. And one of our favorite places to find encouraging news stories is from the Good News Network. And one of our one of the things we like to do is really just read you articles and talk about them because they put a That's little right. smile on your face. It's a cold Monday evening. And so we thought that we would do that for you to kick your week off in a in a fun, hopefully a put a smile on your face kind of way. All right. So Brian. Why don't you just open us up with the first story from the Good News Network? Yeah, this is good news. New method for treating Alzheimer's disease developed by researchers. Researchers in Oslo, Norway, have developed an artificial intelligence method to help them identify potential new medicines for Alzheimer's. Wow. The new medicine seems to be more precise. No side effects were documented during tests with worms and mice. One of the causes of Alzheimer's disease is the degeneration and loss of nerve cells in the brain as we age. A cell is like a finely tuned machinery. The cell needs energy to perform its tasks. The energy comes from energy factories like mitochondria. Uh, And so it's going to go on and talk about that a new method, potential method for treating the disease is described by this group in a new study where they say we may be able to reduce or stop the progress of the disease with the patient. We can do this by increasing the cell's ability to self-clean. Uh, it mm. talks about clogging and all of this stuff. And so, Aubrey, I would say I don't understand this stuff. Yeah, we, right. Anyone who's had any a loved one have Alzheimer's or somebody in their life has Alzheimer's, it's awful. It's just yeah, it awful. absolutely is. And there is no cure. And way too many people have it as they get older. And so, to see progress being made in the arena of can we um, treat Alzheimer's? Can we cure Alzheimer's? Can we delay Alzheimer's? Whatever else it might be, any progress that can be made is in fact good news. Yeah, absolutely. Love that story. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Okay, here's another one, Brian. Maybe not as life-altering as Alzheimer's, but pretty interesting. You ready for this? Mm -hmm. You have dogs at your house, right? Two of them. Two dogs. Okay. 
dogs can differentiate between languages, a new study finds. Dog brains can detect speech and show different activity patterns to familiar and unfamiliar languages, according to a new brain image study. This is the first demonstration that a non-human brain can differentiate two languages. So, um, interestingly, this is uh, from a researcher who says that he had a dog. He only talked to his dog in Spanish, but then he moved from Mexico to Hungary. And he noticed that some people in Budapest were speaking a different language, Hungarian to the dog. And he noticed his dog sort of responded differently to that. Interesting. And then anyway, began to do research with 17 other dogs who laid motionless in a brain scanner, played them speech excerpts from the little prince in Spanish and Hungarian. All dogs had heard only one of the two languages from their owners. So basically they could do a comparison. And um, basically they found that when they compared the brain responses to speech and non-speech, researchers found Found distinct activity patterns in the dog's primary auditory cortex. I don't know anything that that means scientifically, <laughs> except here's what it basically says. Dog brains, like human brains, can distinguish between speech and non-speech or between Spanish and Hungarian. So it's they crazy. have language-specific activity patterns. Isn't that interesting? It is. I'm convinced. I have two dogs, as you said. There are days where I think they're the dumbest animals in the world because of things <laughs> they do. And then there are days you're like, I think they're a lot smarter than we think. Interesting. Like, the, you know, there are certain words you say to your dog and they immediately do it. And you're like, mm. oh, what is going on? And yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Bilingual dogs. That would be bilingual impressive. Bilingual dogs. All right. Diego Rivera's dream of a city of arts in Mexico turns to reality 80 years later. Hmm. Diego Rivera created many masterpieces, but he envisioned a magnum opus that never came to be in his life in his lifetime. A city of art where Mexican practitioners of all ages and disciplines could come to study, showcase and celebrate the art of their diverse cultural heritage. Uh, Frida Kahlo's husband and mentor, Rivera, is famous for his use of cubism. Uh, in large public murals like the History of Mexico, the Allegory of California, and the Man at the Crossroads. Uh, but it was after a long and storied career that he bought land in a suburb of Mexico City to build his utopian city of art. Now, 65 years after his death, Rivera's uh, Ciudad de las Artes. Did I get nice, that? How's my nice, Spanish? Nice the dogs there, out there knew exactly what I said. <laughs> It has finally come to life, a 64,000-square-foot complex south of the capital. The City of Arts centers around an Aztec temple-inspired museum built on volcanic rock in which Rivera's personal collection of more than 50,000 pre-Hispanic artifacts are housed. And it goes through to say his dream well after his death of this place where art took place, where it was displayed and everything else uh, is coming to fruition mm, all these cool. years after his death. Oh, I love that. That's a great story. Okay, here's a wild one, Brian. A drone helps save the life of a 71-year-old man who has cardiac arrest while shoveling snow. Mm. Okay, so 74 so, excuse me, 71-year-old Swedish man was outside shoveling snow and apparently uh uh, he had a heart attack, obviously a cardiac event, and he made a speedy recovery after the speedy delivery of a defibrillator via an autonomous 
drone. Mm. The company behind the drone pilot project says it's the first time in medical history a drone has played a crucial part in life in saving a life during a cardiac arrest. So he was in his driveway shoveling. The event occurred. Uh, normally, you have about 10 minutes in such a situation to call an ambulance and have them come get you. But a telephone call was immediately replaced requesting emergency services. And instead of like in the States where an ambulance would come, this Ever Drones innovative life-saving program called EMADE, Emergency Medical Aerial Delivery Service, brought this external defibrillator to the scene. Oh, wow. It was safety delivered to his doorstep. Here's the crazy part. Even more fortuitous, a doctor happened to be driving by and stopped to see if he could help. So the doctor was obviously there to to use the defibrillator, but it saved the man's life. But apparently it's an easy defibrillator. So even if a doctor wasn't there, anyone should be able to use it. That's but it awesome. saved his life. Isn't that crazy? Good use of technology. Yep. Uh, along the same lines as unbelievable technology, watch the path of a raindrop from anywhere in the world. Oh. Have you ever wondered how far raindrops travel after they fall upon the heights of the Kilimanjaro? On the off chance you're dying to know, some curious cartographers have created a mapping tool that visualizes the path a raindrop will take to the sea from anywhere on Earth. So basically, uh, for the sake of time, I'll explain it. They're they're taking a raindrop falls. How does it make its way all the way to the sea? What rivers does it fall in? Oh, what, how does it cool. go? It's really fascinating. And they found some uh, very interesting findings like that Washington, D.C., all the water that feeds Washington, D.C. comes from rainfall and upwelling <laughs> springs on the western side of the Appalachians. Wow. Uh, and so stuff like that. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, stuff. fascinating. One more and then we'll end our show for the day. A family cat has been reunited with its owners after getting stuck in a reclining armchair <laughs> that was donated to a thrift store. If you go to goodnewsnetwork.com, you'll see this or you'll see this picture. It is wild. But basically a cat kind of tucked himself inside of an old recliner like into the mechanism under the yeah. you know under the chair they donated it not knowing but he had a um, microchip and so apparently his family was able to find that he was missing they called the store he had hitched a ride they were able to get him out and take him home is that a wild story and no if i know anything about cats the cat then was not thankful at all and was <laughs> just aloof and mean that's probably exactly accurate. Sorry for all you cat lovers out there, but that is just the truth. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com. <laughs> 